So I have a question for you guys. You ready? On the count of three, I want you to shout out. Are you ready? I want you to shout out your age. At the count of three, everybody shout out their age as loud as they can. Ready? One, two, three. Great. Good job. Okay. Now that we're all settled in and we know how old our neighbor is, let's get rolling on this. All right. So how many of you have been to a funeral lately? Raise your hand. Look around. Yeah. How many of you have been to a funeral in the last year? Raise your hand. Yeah. How many of you have been to more than one funeral in the last year? Okay, great. How many of you go, I don't like going to funerals. Raise your hand. Okay, but yet we have them, yeah? And so let's figure out today how we can uh, reinvent end-of-life planning. That's going to be one conversation that we have today. And we're also going to be talking with some, uh, our panelists today are going to be talking about things that aren't funeral related, that kind of uh, are not fun to talk about, I wouldn't say, but necessary to talk about and important to talk about. I'm guessing that's why you're here, yeah? Is there anybody that's here that had no idea what today's topic was and said, oh, no, I'm out of here? No? It's just Shannon. Okay, I don't, Shannon, you knew what the topic was. That's not true. All right, so today's topic is the truth about death, dying, and funerals, navigating end-of-life decisions. On a serious note, you know, the last year, uh, we had already set this schedule. We knew this was a topic that would be held in October, all these things. But you don't know when you set the schedule what's, what life is going to bring, right? And so for us, life brought at least three deaths in our family that we were not expecting. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, they were all very different. And I will tell you that, well, and I won't say who, but I'll tell you that one of the uh, end-of-life ceremonies and funeral services, celebration of life, whatever you want to call it, was, can we put those blinds down, you guys? Thank you. Uh, it, it was amazing. The, the celebration of life was amazing. The family came together, um, communicated, collaborated, made uh, the, the service really special. One of the others um, that I am familiar with and involved in had no planning, none at all. In fact, even the day of the passing when they knew that it was imminent had no None. No planning, no idea, no, no inkling of an idea what to do next. The third one, uh, there was no service at all. The family chose not to do a service. And that's certainly their prerogative. But it was interesting. The feelings that I felt and the experience I had with each of those were so different. Right? Just imagine, just kind of going through the process of each of those three were so different. And so what I realized is that God was preparing me for today. Right? Sometimes you don't know why you're being prepared or how you're being prepared, but we're always being prepared for what we need. And so it was interesting. In the course of those experiences, I met some really cool people. And so I'm going to bring our panelists up. Uh, I got to meet uh, a funeral service, a funeral director and his team. I got to meet a hospice team. And uh, in the course of setting up this event, I got to meet Lance here at Crossings. And so these three became my expert panelists because they are amazing people. And I know them well enough to know that they're going to be able to give us some great information today. Can we give them a round of applause? 
What I wanted to say was a funeral director, a hospice nurse, and a church pastor walked into a bar. <laughs> but I didn't have a punchline, so I left that out. <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome. All right, you got your microphones? Awesome. Good. I printed out all my questions on my printer at home this morning and then promptly left them on the printer at home. So I have my iPad with all my questions. And uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through these. Um, and I, I think that what I want you guys to hear as they introduce themselves today is that these three folks come from very different perspectives, um, but every single one of them is a heart person, what I would call a heart person. You know heart people, right? Heart people care about others. Um, they, they have great empathy, and that's one of the things uh, that I appreciate about all these folks. So, Alec, go ahead and give us an introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do and a little bit about your experience with that. So, my name is Alec Dyer. I'm a funeral director at Buchanan Funeral Service here in Oklahoma City, and I've been there for about eight years. That's put me in front of about a thousand 1,500 funerals over that time period that I've been uh, personally involved in. A lot of experience for a, for a very young age. Uh, I've been married for five years to my wife, Kara. Uh, her father is also the owner of the funeral home and my employer, so that's a fun dynamic also. <laughs> I've got twin boys at home. They just turned one on Saturday. And then had a big birthday party. <laughs> You know, you think that applause was big. Tell them where you went to school, Alec. I uh, went to school for freshman year at OSU. Right? So, yeah, so you got a lot of And then you went to school and finished up your degree where? UCL. Right? We got a whole other contingency of those folks out here, too. So I'm sorry, Sooners. I don't know. I didn't ask these guys. But maybe do you got either one of you guys Sooner graduates? Boomer. <laughs> That's why we put Laquita between. Right. <laughs> you did ask to share an interesting fact, so the only one I came up with is uh, I'm a milk fanatic. So milk is my drink of choice for every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, after exercising. Uh, I go through two gallons a week by myself, and now we've got two babies that are uh, going to join in on that. So uh, pray for our, our milk budget. Right. Oh, my gosh. So I told these guys to tell a, a unique fact that nobody else would know about them and make them more memorable. That is not going to be a hard one to, to forget. I mean, it's going to be easy to remember that for sure. Hard to forget that. Milk? Really? Chocolate? No, no. Just regular? Regular. No quick mix in there? No. Whole milk, 32 ounce glass right. at dinner. I okay. usually have two. Very good. I bet you shop at uh, Sam's or Costco. Uh, Brahms, because my wife wants the receipts for a fair of the hard ticket. There you go. <laughs> All right, good deal. So you guys, you guys get now why I like these folks, right? Okay, Laquita, talk to us a little bit about you and then share us a fact about yourself that nobody might know. I, I do like milk, but maybe not, not that much. <laughs> my name is Laquita Collins. I'm an RN. I am working with Providence Hospice Care. I'm the clinical director. Um, I've been a hospice nurse for 25 years. I just did the math in the bathroom, because I usually say 20 plus years. I said, well, let me get the exact number, miss. And I saw 25, I was like, wow, that went by That's a quarter so of a century. fast. Quarter yes, century. I'm silver. Um, hospice is my ministry. It's the one thing I know God has called me to do. Um, I'm very comfortable with taking care of people um, that are dying. 
conversations. I'm very comfortable talking about death, um, which is kind of weird to some people and yeah. sad to some people. Um, but I love it. It's it's what I'm it's what I'm called to do. Laquita, um, I remember having a conversation with you. You went up to uh, New York uh, during the pandemic and cared for people there. Talk a little bit about what, why you did that. Well, that was going to be my unique fact, actually. Oh, go ahead. All right, use that. I, I really <laughs> Spoiler felt, alert. <laughs> I really felt compelled to go to New York because I heard that people were dying alone. Um, I had just lost my brother, and but when I heard that the people were dying by themselves, I really felt the need to go. So I went, but my prayer was, uh, okay, I just lost my brother, now I'm my only child, so God, I need you to protect me. I need you to cover me, uh, because I need to make it back home to my parents, and he did. And so I thought I was gonna go into the hospitals, but God protected me and allowed me to go into a hotel, and it was my responsibility, as well as the, some more nurses to convert a hotel into a safe haven for for patients post-COVID. So God made it that I was able to go, I was able to be a blessing, I was able to have an amazing experience, meet amazing people, but yet I was still I was still protected and I was able to make it back home to my parents, so for that I'm grateful for it. And how long were you up there? I was supposed to go just for six weeks. I ended up going for two years. Oh, pandemic stuff and all the uh, you know our heroes and you know thanking our heroes and I you know you do that generally and you think about that and you hear a story like Laquita's and I go okay that's that's what we were cheering for right they these people went above and beyond what they had to do and and uh, it's pretty amazing stuff so thank you for that yeah Lance talk to us about about yourself where, where you're right here you're at home right here I'm at home I'm at home I was left here last night yeah so I'm Lance Ward I have been the congregational care pastor here at Crossings for 13 years before that I was a hospice chaplain for a brief stint and before that I was a lead pastor and I think one of the reasons I was asked to do this is I've counted up and I think I've officiated or taken a part in about 300 plus funerals in my 23 years of ministry, many of them here where we, we average about one a week at crossings lately and I split duties with one other man. Uh, married for 33 years, um, I guess, the, and I became a grandpa two weeks ago, so if you want to call me Poppy, you're welcome to do that. I have photos, I can show you those all later. Right, uh, but, um, I, guess, I guess the fact about myself, we have, Gave birth, my wife gave birth to three kids, and I only almost passed out on two out of three when I was there at the delivery. So maybe that's a fun fact just to know that I have a weak stomach, I guess it is. But uh, by the time the third one got here, I was done passing out. But when the OB walks in the room and the dad is lying on the, on the floor with his feet up in a chair, he, and he asks, which one of you two is having the baby today? That was the story of my life for two-thirds of my children. So... That's a great visual, Lance. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like lying on a hospital floor. They're so clean. Yeah. I, you know, Lance has lots of humor, so you'll have to pardon me today if I have to regain my train of thought once in a while. Okay, so let me tell you how I know these guys. Uh, I told you I know Lance because uh, we got to know him when he engaged with us about putting on the seminars here. But I got to know Laquita, and we're going to call her Q because that's what you go by, right? So Q is... Uh, was the first person that we asked to come out and talk with my Uncle Don, my dad's brother, when uh, we knew that he was terminal with cancer. And uh, 
I, you know, I knew Brian Banks. He's here. He's the owner of Providence. And he had said, you know what, uh, I've got the best hospice team you'll ever meet. And I thought, yeah, yeah, everybody said that. And so we had uh, Q come out, and I thought, I don't know how my uncle's going to take this because he's kind of one of these. Uh, he, he's so funny. He's a great guy. But he will basically, um, he, he didn't want to hear of hospice. He really talked about it. And, and I know a lot about hospice, so I was able to share with him. And he still didn't want to talk. But I convinced him, and, and Danielle and I and Jeff convinced him to talk to Q. And I thought, that's a first step. And she came in, and I just thought, oh, Lord, let this go well. And she sat down, and I was blown away at the conversation that she had with him, with us in the room. But she was so tuned in with him and engaged with him. And when she left, he said, you know, I really like her. He said, I actually understand what hospice is. He said, I think that might be a good thing. And I was like, I can't believe it. I could not believe it. And so later we engaged with them, and they cared for him through the end of his life. Um, which we were really blessed uh, to have she and her team. And then uh, Alec, I know him because when uh, Chris's dad passed away in February, uh, Jim had chosen Buchanan as the uh, funeral home where he would have his service. And so we reached out, obviously, and scheduled a meeting. And Alec was the guy on the, on the task, and he had a family meeting with us. And again, a conversation that you go into not knowing what to expect and being blown away, right? And uh, it was really, uh, it was a, it, he basically just facilitated a great conversation with our family and made us think of things that we hadn't thought about. And then, uh, and then he basically went above and beyond to make that service something that uh, we were all very proud of. And, and so thank you for that. Sorry if I get choked up a little bit. That's still very fresh. Okay, so we're going to talk. Um, and you know, isn't it interesting? I, I do this all the time, and yet... It's an emotional thing, isn't it? It's emotional. And so can we, everybody agree that it's okay to be emotional? Can we all agree on that? Okay. It's also okay for it to be funny. And it's also okay for it to be whatever emotion you're having. So I just want to put that out there to everybody. Okay. Because everybody's in a little different place. So the first question I ask these guys to answer is, in your experience, uh, in the line of work you're in, what do you think most people are, um, what do you think that, that, the challenges are uh, surrounding the end of life that people have talking about. What, you know, what do they not want to talk about? Go ahead, Pew. Death. At all, right? At all. Yeah, yeah. The word itself. Mm -hmm. um, even like we, what you're talking about with your uncle. A bit closer. Just the idea um, coming and accepting. Um, that is going to happen to all of us. When do they usually talk about it? You, you're, you're in hospice. You deal with people who are in the end of life. When, when does that conversation usually come up in your experience? Sometimes, luckily, patients and families talk about it early on. Uh -huh. In my experience, it's been people who talk about it early on, their, their acceptance is better. Yeah. Um, but there are those that don't talk about it until they have the, problem, the, the terminal diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. And so, Alec, I mean, obviously you're in the funeral business, so uh, your experience, have most people had these conversations as they come to meet with you, or is this kind of the first time they've had this conversation? A lot of times it's it's the first time they had the conversation. Every once in a while we get some that um, have talked a little bit further, gone a little bit more in depth, but most of the time our best case scenario, a lot of hands raised for who's attended the funeral. And they talk about it when they're walking out of the funeral until they get to the car, and then they leave it there and they don't talk about it again. 
So it might be, I can't believe they made us sit through a 20-minute video, and then they move on. And that's the only opinion that they have, and that's the only thing that they share it with, is whoever they attend that funeral with. And, and a lot of times that's our experience. So. Okay, yeah. And now, Lance, uh, you mentioned to me uh, that people may not be talking about it much. In fact, you got how many congregation members here you have? We have about 8,000 that come through the doors on Sundays. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah, in my experience, people often don't talk about it until they've received a terminal diagnosis. And sometimes even then they won't talk about it, you know, because, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, a tactful way we have to go about things because we can see in visiting the hospital, we can see that chances are about 99% unless there's a miracle, this person is not going to make it for, for a few more days. And so if we feel like we've got a relationship with the, their loved ones, we might take them out in the hall and say, have you thought about a funeral home? Have you thought about these things? Because if they don't, the, the sad thing is then instead of being able to grieve right when their loved one passes, they have to start doing things. And that's always true too, but I've had, I've seen a, I've saw a skilled nursing facility when I was a hospice chaplain, family, their loved one was on hospice, they died. They were out at the nurse's station, this is back in the day, and they were thumbing through the yellow pages, just looking for a funeral home, which is a terrible way to choose a funeral home. Uh, or, or a, a provider in that way. So, yeah, a lot of people don't talk about it at all until they have to, and that's not the best time to talk about end-of-life things. Okay. Um, i just like to add to that, too. Um, my experience has been that um, a lot of times patients and families have a hard time talking about death, even when they get the terminal diagnosis, because we're believing God for a healing. And sometimes when, when they, they can't understand the dynamic that it's okay to choose hospice and still believe God for a healing, because I'm believing that too. Right. But in the meantime, you need help with your mother. Right. She's in pain. She's uncomfortable. Yeah. I can help with that. Right. So sometimes that dynamic too, um, the religious factor, I've seen that a lot, especially in my community. Um, it's, it's a really tough barrier that we don't want to talk about it. And I, I bring reality to the room. Whenever I walk in a room, even if you say that you're, that you're ready and that you've accepted and that you're ready to die, when I come in the room, I've often seen people change their minds yeah. just because I'm end of life. I, I think one thing too, in a faith community, for some reason, people think that if I have strong faith, I, I don't need to deal with this. But the Bible is very clear. We're a Christian church. So the Bible is very clear. Death is all through it. They, they, that everyone is going to die. And it, there's the grief is the same thing. We, my, me and my wife have a book, or my wife and I. I just say that because my, my mom's in heaven and she was an English teacher. And she's going to correct that. But we have a book entitled, Faith Does Not Erase Grief. Grief is also something that we are meant to do. It is not a lack of faith when we grieve. It's not a lack of faith when we say, you know what, our loved one, it looks like they're not going to make it. That is not a lack of faith. That is dealing with reality. And it's a good way of dealing with reality. Death is real. Yeah. And, and you know, again, from my perspective, if you want to see the air go out of a room, start asking a family member who just lost a loved one, what did they want? Did they want to be buried or cremated? Did, that they want a video, and when they don't know those answers, 
the discouragement just washes over them. Right. They didn't know, and they, uh, they feel know. bad, don't yeah. they? And they there, feel there's bad a lot of guilt, yeah. a lot of grief that comes with just uh, the unknown answers to those yeah. questions that we've got to ask yeah. at some point. And uh, when we don't know those answers, then it's a its own stage. It's of grief. its own stage. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about that, Lance. You know. Uh, we had a panel a couple, three years or so back, uh, had a hospice uh, representative on the panel, and she said, you know, uh, all the studies say, 100% of the studies say that 100% of us are going to die. And I, I'm, I hadn't heard her say that before, and I sat there and I was like, well, that's an interesting way to put it, right? So, uh, so it's not something we can avoid. Faith or not, uh, it's going to happen. It's reality. It's, it's the sort of circle of life. If you've ever watched The Lion King, it explains it really well if you're not sure how that worked. So let's talk a little bit about the magic wand. I asked you guys uh, if you could wave a magic wand to make people do certain things that they don't naturally do, like we just talked about, what would you have them do and why from your perspective? Go ahead, Lance. In light of what we just talked about, and we have several families here at Crossings who have done this, but if there's less than 10 in a church of several thousand, less than 10 have done this with us, I would say tell your family what you want in your funeral. Tell them if you want to be buried or cremated. Tell them, and we've got a handout of the Crossings thing back on the back table about how to plan your funeral, but communicate to your family what you want. What are your favorite songs? What are your favorite scriptures? It's, Alec, you nailed it. I, I can't tell you how many times I meet with a family and I'll say, what what songs did they like? They were in church for all their lives. Oh gosh, we don't know. How about Amazing Grace? You know, and that's always the go-to. Well, what were their favorite scriptures? Oh, we don't know. We'll see if we can find a Bible in the house. Or, Who would maybe you like to speak for them? Hmm, we haven't thought about that. And so the family is put into a very difficult situation because we did not talk about death like we should have. And we did not love them by going ahead and putting a plan there and saying, I'm gonna, my mother wrote her own obituary. I am so thankful for that. All I had to do was fill in the date of death and how much she loved her son. That's all I had to do. <laughs> she really planned ahead. I can't tell you how much that meant to me to get on her laptop and say, here it is, fill in a couple dates, it's done. Because I didn't care what she did in her career when I was a kid. She accomplished a lot though and she wrote some things like that are even important. And I would say with hospice, um, I loved how you said to love your family enough to, to make the decisions for them. Um, making this decision to what you want to happen. Do you want to be a DNR, complete your living will? Do you want artificial feedings? Do you um, do you want the tr the treatment to continue um, even when you when it's not working? Do you want to stop the treatment when it's not working? My father, speaking personally, um, I did the DNR with him. Explain to them real quick, just so that everybody knows what a DNR is. A DNR is, it's a piece of paper that we have to have in order for when we put patients on hospice. It's not necessary, but it is really good. Um, if you do not want any heroic acts, if you don't want CPR, if you don't, if you want to be innovated, you just want to allow nature to take its course. It's, it's, um, it's permission for it's you guys to not have to serve the, the So the beauty of having a DNR in hospice is that when we have it in place when a patient dies, we don't have to call 911 because if we don't have it and you die at home, you do have to call 911. With that comes the bells and whistles, the coroner and all those things. 
with hospice, we're able to go in, and it's a, it's a natural death. We're able to call the family in. Um, we don't have to call uh, 911. We're able to call the funeral home for you. You're able to be at home with your loved one. Um, my dad did that for us. When it comes, especially if you have a big family, um, we were talking about this a minute ago, death will bring out either the worst in everybody or the best in everybody. My mom's tend to see more of the worst in everybody. But um, if you make the decision, our, our family, like I said, is a big family. And so when my dad was dying, I was able to step into the space and say, hey, this is not our decision to make. He's already made the decision for us. All we have to do is do what he said. He said he didn't want any of these things. We don't have to continue to continue with heroic measures because he didn't want them. And so just being able to do that and being able to tell families and see families the relief that, that flows over them when they don't have to worry about that, it's, it's wonderful. I've also seen the other side when the patients and families have not talked about it. And now mom's dying and we've never talked about what she's wanted. And so then I, what I see a lot is that it becomes more what you want. And may not be, it may not be, but you're not the one that's going through, you know, what, what you see your mom going through. So it's always best to have that conversation. And it is a gift. It's a gift of love because it takes the burden off of those who love you. You know, I hadn't thought about that, Q. When my uh, stepmom was, she was ill for a very long time, off and on. And uh, my dad was her primary caregiver. We're a blended family. So I had a stepbrother, stepsister, myself, and my brother, and then my dad, stepmom. When she passed, uh, she had she had become very ill. She was in the hospital. And my dad was the one that had to decide that we were done, right? That she was no longer going to be able to make it. And later, uh, my stepbrother, who was grieving and unhappy, um, blamed him. And basically said, you know, you, you killed her. Not, not you let her die, but you killed her. And they no longer have a relationship, haven't had a relationship since. My dad no longer has a relationship with his granddaughter because of that decision that was made. Because my dad had to make a decision, and that's the decision he made. And so I see, I see families that are torn apart because nobody talked about it. And she had been sick for at least three years. And knowing that that was ultimately going to be the end of that. I thought of one other thing as you were talking to Q that if one of the questions that you need to answer for your family is if at all possible, where would you like to die? A lot of people die in the ICU after weeks and weeks of basically hopelessness because the family wants them to live. If you ask any doctor, they, about 90-some percent of doctors will say, if I had the choice of dying in an ICU, even if I work in that hospital or at home, I take home every time. So sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes there's no choice. But I see a lot of families, their last weeks with their family are in an ICU where they're not sleeping at all, rather than at a hospice house or a home. So that's one other thing to communicate is, if I had the choice of where to die, do I want to die in the ICU or would I rather die at home? Let your family know that um, because it, it is sad. I don't know if you used to probably see this a lot, but there's just really, apart from a miracle, which don't happen very often, they really don't. That's why they're called miracles. Apart from a miracle, this person is not going to make it. So it's, it's agonizing. So uh, 
kind of piggybacking off of a few things we've talked about, but one thing I've learned in being a father for a year that I didn't know before was being prepared is a luxury. <laughs> being prepared is a luxury. Uh, my alarm clock went off and I was getting up to get in the shower and problem with two babies, my wife was already holding one, the other one started crying and now I don't have a belt on because I got here late because <laughs> the baby was crying on my way out of the door. And that's the same thing uh, that we're talking about and, and the opportunity that you have to be prepared for what the end of life looks like and, and all of those conversations. And like you said of bringing out the best and the worst, uh, if you haven't uh, recognized the friction that can come from planning an event like a funeral or hospice or any kind of end of, end of life situation, uh, come talk to me about planning a one-year-old birthday party and how a family <laughs> survives that. Because that, that was a lot of friction last week. Um, and that was a celebration for fun. Yeah, that was a celebration right. for, for fun. My credit card <laughs> statement doesn't say that. But um, the other thing that Lance kind of mentioned was uh, knowing what your story is and how important that is. And that's the big thing. If I could wave the magic wand and say, let's do something different, ask yourselves that question. Uh, what's your story? And Lance and I have had these conversations quite a bit uh, over the last week preparing for this. So, that's the difference in an impactful service and one that just goes through the motions. Uh, if you're able to lay out for your family and say, you know, this is what was important to me and this is what I want to leave my legacy as, uh, that changes all the conversations uh, quite a bit. So, You know, uh, so let me keep going. I could, I could ask tons of follow-up questions, but I'll keep going. Okay, so any other, any other things you would wave a magic wand? And do so. Lance says, "Tell plan and give that plan to somebody, either in your church or in your family or someone." Alec, you basically said that similarly. Q, you said, "Wave a magic wand." It would be complete your advanced directives. Yes. So okay. your family doesn't have to make decisions Paperwork, for you. Paperwork. Yes. Yeah. advanced directive, living will. What do you want to happen? And update it. And update it. <laughs> and update it. Some of them have done it. It's been 20 or 30 years ago yeah. since they did it. It might be good to do it again. Yes. Yeah. My only thing I would add to that is just don't uh, muddy the waters with guilt or outside pressure. Uh, I think a lot of times you can get yourself into that situation with your advanced directive. Uh, my wife and I have had those conversations of, I know what she wants, and it's not what I want. And... Uh, being able to take hold of that and say, you know, this is what I want, these are my wishes, and it doesn't fit what you want. And a lot of times we trap ourselves in that with the church, too, of uh, when we're planning a funeral and, and we're asking, hey, amazing grace, or, or this question or that, and it's, well, what's the church normally do? What do you normally do, Lance? And that's where we stick ourselves. And you're not limited to that. You're not limited to that. So don't uh, give in to... Right. Social pressures, pressures yeah. or whatever pressures. Might take your independence yeah. in these situations. Too. Yeah, it was interesting because you mentioned that about your wife. I said something to Chris one day about my plan, and he also didn't agree with my plan. And I said, well, that's great because it's my plan. The problem with that is guess who's in charge when you're gone? The person left behind. So the spouse, according to Oklahoma statute, is my understanding, is the first person. Uh, and I don't see an attorney in the room, so I'm not an attorney. But what I read is that that, that spouse is the first person that they're going to go to for that information. If, it, if the spouse isn't available, isn't available, then it's the children. Now, if you have multiple children, they they usually all agree, right? 
right? No comment. Yeah. So, you know, in this case, uh, I would say that my kids would, would not know because I haven't talked to them specifically about it. And that's, you know, that's on my heart to do after doing all this research. Okay. So here we go. Let's go with the next question I've got for these guys is, and Q, I'm going to start with you. Do people with a terminal illness have to go to the hospital to die? And we kind of alluded to this, but I want to be specific. If not, um, why do they, first of all, and how could it be if they planned ahead? Um, no, they don't have to go to the hospital to die. Most people, like um, Lance, Lance. <laughs> like Lance said, prefer to die at home. Just call me L. You can yeah. cue on me, <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I told you. I, he throws you off. You gotta, you gotta watch. <laughs> uh, but most people do prefer to die at home. The reason why they end up dying in the hospital is because of fear. Um, we have patients that are on hospice that will often call 911. It's just a, it's a, reaction. It's a jerk reaction. When something is going on with their loved one, they just call 911. Um, but no, they don't have to. They don't have to die um, in the hospital. Like I said, most people prefer to die at home. Okay. And so, what would uh, so like with my uncle, for instance, and we use his case as an example because you are familiar. You know, he he did not want to go to the hospital. But the family, like we were kind of, there was times where it's like, oh my gosh, this. We feel like we should go to the hospital. Like we don't really know how to handle this. And you guys said to us, just call us first. Call us first, and we'll come out and evaluate and determine if, if it really needs to be a hospital. Sometimes it's just medication that they need. That's the beauty of hospice, is that you have someone to call. Yeah. You know, it's my job as a nurse to come in and tell your family what's going on, why it's happening, what may happen next, if it can or cannot be controlled. The things we can control, we will, and the things that we can't, we'll, we'll talk you through it. And like I said before, fear is just a jerk reaction to call 911 most times. But um, if we have those conversations in advance, um, then we can usually prevent that from happening. Also, when you're on hospice, if, if I come in your home and I see that you're having a bad day, then I'm going to come and see you again, either tonight or tomorrow. I'm going to be calling you. Um, we are the end-of-life experts. We deal with death and dying all the time. There are processes that people go through when they're dying. If I see those things happening in you, then I'm going to see you more often. My experience has been is as long as patients and families are educated, right. educated and supported, and reminded of their loved ones' wishes if they already have them in place, you don't have to make the decision. All I have to do is do what my loved one asked me to do. If you have all those things in place, then, it, then, then they don't end up at the hospital. Yeah. You know, that was interesting, too, uh, just as a, as a reflection on that experience. Uh, in my world, it was Michael Donnie, uh, my, my cousin Jeff, who was his essentially his power of attorney, um, and then Danielle and myself. And by the way, that, we're all three control freaks. Um, and my uncle Donnie is the worst of all of the control freaks. And so we were all in charge at some point. And I remember Amy, the social worker, basically saying, okay, you guys need to pick a person. Pick a person. And it was Jeff because he was the, he was the person. But what was interesting was even having done this and, and having, you know, some understanding of how hospice works, we didn't do it well, I'm going to say, as a family, right? We needed professionals to guide us because this is not something we do every day. That's the beauty of hospice, right? Because yeah. we're able to come in and step in as we did, and 
remind you of what your loved one wanted. Yeah. What does he want? That's what, what y'all kept want? saying. What does, what does he, he want? want? What like, did he tell you? What I don't know. Say? Right. And, and then empowering you yeah. to, you know, to step back and allow for what he wanted to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we had no guilt around that because it was it was on his terms. Yeah. Um, Alec, do you and Lance have anything you want to add to that about dying in the hospital versus at home? And I, I think one thing specifically about that question of where do I die is we don't recognize the lasting impact that the answer has. Uh, that's one of the questions that I don't think gets asked the most but is on people's mind the most of what happens when I die and where is it going to be. Um, a personal example, my brother-in-law lost his father. It's been a couple years ago and I watched his mom agonize over that. Um, it was where do we have the funeral? And she'd been in the same church her whole life. That's where the kids grew up. But she couldn't imagine walking in every Sunday after the funeral and only seeing the casket up front. Same thing with where, where did they pass away? Am I going to be left with the last week of memories of tubes in a hospital bed and nurses coming in every two hours? Are we going to do that at the comfort of our house? What, what's that look like? And just recognizing how important that question is and what your answer is. Yeah, because uh, there are other options besides home and hospital. There's hospice rooms at the hospital. There's a hospice, hospice house. Or home for hospice is wherever the patient is, right. you know, whether it's an assisted living or a nursing home. Um, in order to go to inpatient hospice house, it has to be a symptom that is not being controlled. I can't control it at home. Um, so we've got to have um, hospital help. Equipment, basically, and staff. We have to, be, if there's a medication that I'm giving you something for pain and it's not helping to relieve your pain, you go to the hospital, they're able to give you medication through an IV. We don't do that at home. So those would be reasons that we would send it to, send a patient to generally a patient hospice. Right. And then let's just talk about that too, because you mentioned, you know, the location in the home. So someone may say, you know, I don't want my, my spouse to pass away in our bedroom because I got to sleep there. So maybe you, you've mentioned that people sometimes will move, make the bedroom, the living the room. The living room. Yeah. yeah. And it's really a good space, too. Right. Because you don't have to, you, you still have, everyone is able to come in the house and visit with you. It's, it's a comfortable space. It's in the living room where we normally visit anyway. And then the one, the, the spouse that's left or the loved one that's left, they're able to go to the room and, and sleep in peace and not have to have that memory of losing their loved one. In that room. In that room. Yeah. yeah. So it does matter. The, the space does matter, and thinking about that ahead of time, very important. Yeah. So Alec, um, a lot of people have misconceptions about how funerals or memorial services have to be conducted or where. What are some ways that you know people have chosen to memorialize their loved ones that people may not think about? Uh, our motto is "Blessed are the flexible," and so that is a very important uh, mindset to have. And I think, kind of we touched on it a little bit earlier, of the ruts that we get ourselves into, this is what we're supposed to do. And sometimes the, uh, that can be a trap that we fall into. And then when you leave the funerals and you've attended several in a year, you can't tell the difference between the two outside of the name on the program. Uh, and, and that's not what we're shooting for. That's not what the goal is. And so some of the unique ways that I think that, uh, that you answer that question of what's your story, for example, Chris's dad was the, it was all movie theater. 
and we had popcorn, and we had uh, movie reels, and we had uh, all kinds of stuff that just showed how important that part of his life was. Right. And, uh, That's what he most identified with. Right. 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 And that was his. Yeah. And one of the uh, other more impactful ones that I can remember, uh, they didn't have a preacher. Sorry, Lance. They didn't have a preacher, and they interviewed all the kids and the grandkids. And, and they put it up on a video, and that was the service. So we didn't have anything except two-minute blurbs of, well, I remember Grandma because she taught me how to make chocolate chip cookies. And I remember this because whatever it might be. And, and it was completely out of the box, and they came up with that themselves. And, and there's just a lot of different options. And Eddie will get on to me after this and say that uh, this is bad for business, but cremation uh, brings out creativity. If you guys don't know, Eddie was a pre previous funeral director, so he's he's a colleague. Right. That's why he get on Right. To but cremation brings out a lot of creativity, and it doesn't have anything to do with cremation versus burial, but when there's a casket involved, people know what they're supposed to do. The casket's supposed to be up front, you're supposed to walk by and view it at the end, and that's how it's supposed to go. And we lock ourselves into boxes that we don't have to be locked in. No pun intended. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we, we do lock the boxes. Oh, that was bad. It was really bad. Lance, I'm surprised I got to it before you did. Yeah, we got to cut that out of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so cremation versus um, uh, burial. Uh, embalming and burial. And you said, I, I have to bring it up because you brought it up. So, you know what? Uh, caskets and urns and all those products, right? People, if they have a plan, do they spend more or less on the casket, Alec? It depends on how uh, well you're liked by your family at the end. Uh, if they really like you, they spend a lot. And if they don't, they keep the money in their pockets. Uh, that, that's a reality, but the it's a little more controlled if it's planned uh, of more what the value is. Uh, I'd rather spend an extra $100 to get the flower arrangement attached to a golf bag than I would on an obituary that's an extra paragraph long. Right. And just knowing uh, what was valuable to that person and what's going to help you answer that question of, of what's your story. So. I told them on when we prepared for this uh, panel the other day, I was telling them, I said, my mom passed away when she was 31. I was 11. And I remember the conversations in my family, uh, and I don't know who said it exactly, but I remember the statement that my grandfather funded the funeral uh, of my mother, and they said, you know, he spent, he could have bought a Cadillac for what he spent <laughs> on her casket. And that was, to me, that stood out. Like that is, I've lived with that thought, and I thought to myself, well, that's just stupid. Right? But it's not, for him it wasn't, because that was his way of saying, I loved her that much. And he could, and he had it, and so he did. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that would have paid for three grandkids to go to college, right? Priorities are different, and when you're grieving, you make decisions based on the emotions you feel at the time. Whereas my mom, probably, if I had to guess, would never have said, I want that casket that costs as much as a Cadillac, right? She probably would have said, well, actually, I know what she said. She wanted to be cremated, and my grandfather said no. 
So she didn't even get her wishes because my grandfather funded the, wed uh, the wedding, the funeral, and therefore he got to decide. Does that make sense? Well, that's what happens sometimes in hospice too. Um, if, if you haven't, if you haven't made, even if you have made your, your needs known to your family, a lot of times your family members, it becomes about them and what I want for mom and what I want for, what I, what I want for dad. Um, and, and it becomes all about you and not the person that's, that's, that's dying. But even with that, sometimes it can be an act of love. Yeah, just yeah. because they love their they love their loved one. Sure. Um, so sometimes that's difficult to take yourself out of that equation. Yeah. Lance, I was going to touch on too what Alex said. I've actually let my wife know. I've said, Jenny, I would like to be buried if it if it's affordable, and I want you to get the cheapest casket the funeral home has. And if people say you're cheap, just tell them that I was the one that was cheap. Because in my experience, how long do people actually look at a casket? A couple hours, and then it's in the ground. And sometimes people spend a lot of money on caskets, and also the vault. People have decorative vaults. Uh, now, if you want that, communicate that to your family. But if that does not matter to you, please communicate to that because they will be making decisions out of guilt rather than what you wanted. So it is important to tell them, hey, go as cheaply as you can, and let's do a service that's just going to remember me as a person. Just make sure they even know that detail of what you would prefer um, and I've done that with my wife just because I do not want her to make an emotional decision I want her to make a decision because I want my wife if I should precede her I want her to have as much as she can to live on I do not want her spending if I'm going to have a Cadillac casket I want a hood ornament on that I'll be <laughs> but I don't want that now you may but you but do communicate that because you don't want your family making expensive decisions out of emotional guilt. Now I asked Alec about this because I know enough about the funeral business to know that part of their, uh, you know, how they're funded is through the sale of the products, the urns and the caskets and so on. So I asked Alec, I said, how do you deal with this now that, you know, people are choosing less expensive products than what they might have before? And you, you shared with me that the funeral business has kind of changed and so let's just tell them how that works, like how that money is made and where you guys have decided to place your value. Absolutely. So uh, just like any business, it's where do people see value in you? Uh, not where do you see value in yourself, but where do people see value in you? Uh, for example, uh, it's $200 if I make a video for somebody for a service. Uh, that is one that it's opposite ends of the spectrum. One person's got a granddaughter, she makes videos all the time, that doesn't make any sense for us. Okay, one is, I, don't, I haven't opened my email in two years, I don't know how to put music on anything, here's $200, do you want 200 more? And it's, that's valuable, uh, that expertise is valuable. And, and that's kind of the same thing, of it's shifting, and before all the profit was in the caskets, everything like that, because everybody bought a casket. And, that's not what's valuable to people anymore. And it's more, uh, how do we make this impactful? Uh, being creative, uh, had one lady, had a family that came in, and she had been very specific and told them exactly what she wanted. Go to the funeral home, get the cheapest thing you've got, and then in this account, there's enough money for everybody to go on a family vacation. And that's what we're gonna do, and so, Get done with the funeral, do the minimum that you have to do, and then go make some memories on a trip. Uh, and that's kind of, it, it doesn't do me any good as a funeral director for 
your lasting memory to be, we spent as much as a Cadillac on that casket. Uh, that doesn't leave anybody with good impressions. Not going to get a lot of referrals. <clears throat> right, right. And, and so the same thing of when you're answering these questions for yourself, uh, what, what's valuable to me? You know, when we sat down with the family with you that day, I remember, you know, it was Jamie was going to handle the program, or his granddaughter, or my niece, and you, you guys would have normally done that for us if we wanted you to. Uh, we were going to handle a lot of the things, and and there were things that we didn't think of, and Alec would go, do you want me to handle that? And I'm like, oh, could you? He goes, happy to. I'm like, okay, that's yours, right? And then a little bit later, something else would happen, and he'd go, do you want me to handle that? I'm, Yes, right? So he was even listening for the things that we hadn't thought of that he could do for us that we didn't even know that they could do for us. And I think that's where I saw value more so that for me it wasn't about, uh, you know, we did all the speaking. We didn't need somebody to get up there and do the speaking for us. But it was the coordination of all of that to make sure that we, you know, even just checking on the cost of the printer and things like that. So he, they were essentially our... Uh, Party planners. Party planners is kind of the way I looked at it. For us with gyms, it was a party. It was a celebration of life. And, um, it was beautifully done. One of the things Alec did was he we said that, you know, because the theme was movie theater stuff, and he looked up something on, I don't know, Pinterest. I don't know, are you a Pinterest guy? Uh, not necessarily, no, but I can't be. <laughs> Pinterest, he looked it up online, and he said, how about this? And he showed me a picture, and it was a popcorn box right pop old striped popcorn box that you see and had uh, white like carnation flowers in the top of it made it look like popcorn he goes what about these for the centerpieces in the reception area and i was like that's perfect he goes do you want me to handle that yes <laughs> so we had a budget and he basically said we're within budget he kept telling me we're within budget on this. If you want to do this, we're within budget. And he kept us focused on our budgets. I was going to say real quick on Alex's point, we love it here at Crossings. We've got a great staff and we can help put on a funeral. We love it though when a funeral provider is involved because what I tell the family too is I was like, they set up all the flowers. You can put all your pictures and mementos in a box, take it to them. They will get here a few hours before and set that up. Um, if you don't, they'll print the folders for you. They'll do the slideshow for you. You mean the church didn't do all that? Uh, we we rarely we the only thing yeah because a lot of people think you're a big church. Can't you print our funeral folders? No, we're printing all kinds of stuff for Sunday. No, we can't do that. Uh, we can't produce your slideshow for you. We we know how. We just don't have the time. Uh, I went, one of the things when you were talking about creativity, we we had a funeral for a pediatric dentist a couple of weeks ago. And when people walked out, what he used to do in his office is when your appointment was over, you got to get a toy. Uh -huh. And so they had two baskets of little rubber balls and, and little things like that. And that everyone got to, that's, you never think about this, but sometimes funerals have party favors. That's kind of what that was. They took those home. I've got two of those bouncy rubber balls on my desk in my office that remind me of Dr. Boyd. And so I love the way though funeral homes can work with you to help you think creatively um, and get yeah. that stuff together. So last question I think I have for you guys, and then we'll open it up to the audience. But, uh, you know, speaking of churches, so you do, you know, lots and lots of funerals. They do funerals for people here at their church. Um, and Laquita, you might weigh in on this as well. But, but are all churches equipped to manage this kind of production and do all these things? Because I think a common misconception is my church will handle this. Since we're recording, I'll, I'll be a very filtered answer. 
No, all churches are not prepared to do this. Some are more prepared than others and run the show pretty well and you can get by with it. That, that's the other thing is what burden are you laying on the church? And a lot of people have different perspectives on that, but churches aren't always equipped to do that and funerals come with a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of different choices, running around, stuff to do. And again, like you said, the, the value of the funeral home is uh, being the helping hand there, right. of just taking as much off your plate as we can and running with that. You can't make death and dying easy. That, that's not uh, within our realm of responsibility. You can't or make cheap, it cheap either. But you can uh, ease the burden a little bit, and that's always the goal. Okay, so is there anything I have not asked you guys that you want to make sure you say before I open it up for questions? Let me say one real quick thing, too. I thought of an analogy, too, we talked about earlier and planning your own funeral. What if you allowed your friends and family to plan your wedding? No one would do that. But your funeral is even more important than your wedding because your funeral is your last words to the world. I don't know if any of you know Tim Keller, great theologian, died a few months ago. His funeral was online. He, he scripted his own funeral except for the eulogies. They wrote their own eulogies, but he even discussed with the eulogizers what they would talk about. It was beautiful. He explained, here's why I wanted this hymn here. This is why this was meaningful to me. I don't, I don't advise that as much, but it was everything he wanted, and it was already there on paper. One thing I would like to say about funerals, length does not equal meaning. Sometimes when we lose a loved one, we think, they were so important, if we could sit here all day. It needs, it needs to be two hours long. It needs to be long. Lengthy funerals frustrate people. At an hour, I sit on the platform, I've done over 300 of these. At an hour, people begin to get to leave if they don't know that this is going to end soon. So I would say that, think of it as in terms of the Gettysburg Address. I don't know if you've ever heard of Edward Everett, but Edward Everett actually delivered a speech before Abraham Lincoln, and it was two hours long, and none of us know about that, but we all know the Gettysburg Address. And I think a, a funeral service here, a sweet spot, is between 45 minutes and an hour, and we in the funeral home will help make that hour meaningful. And trust me, brevity makes a funeral more meaningful than this marathon. Uh, and in that light, think carefully about who you're going to ask to share a eulogy. And if it's somebody that can't stop talking or doesn't know how to land the plane, I'm telling you, ask someone else and tell them between three and five minutes, three and five minutes, that's it. Um, believe me on that link. When a funeral is long, that's all people remember about it. Man, it was long. And every funeral is a reunion as well. So what we try to tell families is there will be an hour in addition to that where your loved one has brought all these people together and they want to catch up with each other. And that's because your loved one was great. So hour for the service, another hour or two sometimes for people just to hang around and catch up. It's a beautiful thing and your loved one has created this moment. So don't forget that if you, give, if you steal that opportunity from people, that will be frustrating. Uh, my only other thing to add uh, a lot of times we get held up on finances you do not have to prepay to pre-plan conversations are free uh, you can have these talks you can answer these questions uh, without forking over any money to anybody and the benefit still is tremendous to do that so they can come in uh, in your case they can come in and do all that planning they don't have to pay for it up front you just keep it in a file 
Correct. Now your family will appreciate you a lot more if you don't pick out a mahogany casket with a hundred bucks in the bank account, but you can still make all those decisions, write them all down, get them on record, and not have to put any money towards it at the moment. And so people do prepay, and that is an option. It's not necessarily today's conversation, but that is an option as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Q, anything you want to add? I just want to add that um, um, with hospice, it's a common misconception that when patients come on hospice that we come in and we bring the sadness and we bring doom and gloom. Um, but that's not what we're about. Um, we're about, we don't focus on the time that we have left, but we work us on, we focus on the, the quality of the time that we have left. Um, hospice is, 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 is not an end all. I've had patients come on hospice that have, that have actually come on hospice because they've gotten better. You get the extra care, the extra attention, and sometimes we see patients get better. Um, hospice is not, it's, although what we do is sad, because when we lose a loved one, it is sad. Um, but there's beauty in having a good death. I always say you, you only get to have a child once, that's an experience you'll remember for the rest of your life, all of us can tell us your birth, your birth stories, your, your birth stories, your children, what happened, what the nurse did, what she didn't do. Hospice and dying is the same way. Our job is to make sure that when you tell your story, it's a good story. That your family's with you and that everything that you wanted to happen, the people that you wanted to be there are there. That's our job. To make sure that when you're gone, when they, when they talk about what happened, that you can smile about it, that you can laugh about it, and that you can feel good in your heart. Yeah. And I think my Bonnie, I know, laughed more in those final days and cut he up was with a you guys. Hoot. He was a hoot, that's for sure. And he had flirt, a major flirt. So every nurse that came in or every caregiver that came in, he he was he was flirt. And yeah, and so but that, but that to me that was be uh, last thing real quick and then I am gonna open it up for questions. And what happened to my screen, by the way? Does anybody know? Um, so could you maybe, yeah, because I do have one slide I want to show. Uh, but Q, one of the things that I, I think is, is important is one of the reasons that it is the perception of hospice being a, a sad event is because a lot of people don't bring them in until those final moments, like the last day. And so when can somebody get hospice on board? You the in my experience, it's better if people come on hospice sooner than later. Um, because then you get to hold the whole hospice experience. And what does that sooner mean? Like as soon as they get a terminal diagnosis? As soon as you decide that you do not want to continue with treatment. And, and take the power in that too. And that you have the desire, the, you have the ability to make your own decision. That you do not have to Doctors, oncologists will always tell you to treat, 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 treat. The question you should ask before you start treatment is how long is this going to extend my life? If it's not going to be beneficial to you, then you have the right as a, as a patient to say, no, I, I'm going to do this my way and I'm going to go home with my family. At that time, when you make that decision, we can come on service at that time. I, as a hospice chaplain, the number one comment I heard from people that, that uh, had us for their hospice provider in Dallas was, I wish we had done this sooner. Yeah. Just along the lines of what you're saying. It's not something like they've got 24 hours, we've got to call hospice. It's 
when there's a terminal diagnosis. And it is, and it is harder when you come on at the last minute because most of the times when patients come on the last minute, that's those are the families that you hear say, they came on hospice and as soon as we put them on hospice, they died. Well, actually not. Sometimes they, they actually improve a bit before they die, was my experience, because hospice actually helps you have a better quality of life with the few, with the little time you have left. It does, yeah. My computer's broken. It's broken. <laughs> All right, so you guys ready? Okay, we're gonna ask a question. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it's fine. I just, I was gonna show, there were two, they, there are three or four books that I, that they've been talking about we can share with them that are up on that slide. But, okay, so what questions do you have for these guys? Wow, all right. Um, I'm not, is it, is it dark in here? <laughs> okay, yes, ma'am. Okay, so if someone dies at home, how often is there a question that the person died naturally versus uh, the someone maybe snuffed them, she said. Ooh, wow. Okay, I don't know if you guys can answer that, but Alec, you want to take a stab at it? Don't get any ideas. No pun intended. <laughs> There's a very interesting story to go along with that. but. Uh, for the most part, what you're asking is about unattended deaths versus attended deaths, and that's the biggest uh, advantage to hospice. Unattended deaths come with a lot more drama. In the Oklahoma, the laws of Oklahoma, anybody that is not on hospice, not at a hospital, uh, unattended means you've got to go through all the uh, and, and call the police. The police come out. The police contact the medical examiner, and you go through all of those extra steps and takes a few hours and, and then you get to move on to the next step uh, as opposed to uh, the ones that are either at the hospital with hospice or at the hospital where uh, everything goes a whole lot smoother yeah so in you know unfortunately not everyone knows they're going to pass we don't all get noticed people do pass at home in, in their sleep and things like that and so in which case they are not on hospice and so they do have to have all that. And unfortunately, it's not, I don't think that they're necessarily suspect. It's just that's the way that the law is, right? You ha it has to happen that way. So um, I don't know that we can answer the question about how many are suspected to be um, snuffed, to use your word. Um, but uh, that, that would be an interesting question to ask the, uh, probably who would we ask, either the coroner's office or the law enforcement people? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, I saw several other hands, so go ahead and raise those back up for me. Okay, so yes, ma'am, Kay, and then I'll get over there to you, Gloria. Yes. sister has uh, some dementia uh, her her sister's husband is not quite really accepted that and she's been told that hospice might be able to come in and provide some support with a dementia diagnosis <clears throat> is that um, <coughs> dementia being a terminal illness 
Is that something hospice can come in? What will be the qualifications for that? For dementia or Alzheimer's, um, patients have to be pretty, have been diagnosed a long time ago. Patients they have to have be pretty advanced in the They state. have to have, the worst thing I look at is a nurse that I can, when I'm looking at an Alzheimer's patient is are they able to walk? Um, are they able to hold themselves up in a chair? Appetite decreased. As long as she's saying that she doesn't want treatment, then she wouldn't be she wouldn't meet hospice criteria. Yeah. So it's good. They've got to be further along, pretty far along in there uh, physically. They've got to be having some issues. But I would just encourage you, while she is able to make her own decisions, that she gets her advanced directives in place, so that when she's not able to make decisions, the family can um, help her in that way. Yeah. Okay. Did that answer your question? Yeah. So, uh, Herb. Yeah. Okay, Herb. Nobody can hear you, so just repeat. Say it real quick, and I'll repeat it for you. So Herb, I'm going to repeat that, and I'm going to have them come back and talk to you. So, so Herb, Herb is with the Alzheimer's Association, um, and he's talking that there are two drugs now that they have found that are slowing the decline uh, progression, if you will. And so everybody needs to know about that. Go talk to Herb about some of the research that he's got back at his table. And I would also say, like in case situation, if someone's not eligible yet for additional hospice support or home care support, they have tons and tons of resources out there for people with dementia. Go talk to Herb and those guys because that's where in the early stages, everybody needs to be in touch with the Alzheimer's Association. Whatever dementia uh, they have, whether it's Alzheimer's or not, they can go talk to those guys for resources for sure. Uh, Gloria? Uh, yes. <coughs> Okay, so the question is, she has a burial plot, and she, if she wants to be cremated or buried there, does she have to use the facilities that are provided there at that particular cemetery, or can she use a funeral home of her choice? Funeral home of your choice, and that's with every cemetery. All the funeral homes will coordinate with them, and, and you can make the best decision for you and your family as far as which funeral service provider you use from the beginning. There's kind of an assumption, I think, that people have that if there is a funeral service or funeral home associated with a, a uh, cemetery that you're obligated but the you are not obligated it's just a convenience that a, a lot of people use but you don't have to okay yeah all right so yes Kate. what is the difference between a dnr a living will and advanced directive the difference between a dnr a living will and advanced directive DNR and a living will are advanced directives. The living will is the, um, the form that you fill out when you about hydration, about food, whether you want to, whether you want to continue treatment. 
if it's helping you or not helping you. It's also the form that you fill out when you're appointing your power of attorney of your healthcare proxy, which is what we look for, which is that person that's able to make the decision for you. So those are all actually the same thing. They're all, they're both advanced directives. The DNR is the form that you actually fill out when you do not want to, um, when you don't want CPR, you don't want intubation, you want to allow nature to take its course. So that's the difference. But the living will tells me as a nurse who I need to talk to in that family. When you're not able to talk, like I was telling the lady earlier about her sister, when you're not able to make your own decisions, the living will is going to tell me as a nurse who is the healthcare proxy that I need to be getting guidance from so they can tell me what your wishes were. So it's very difficult, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, to do a DNR back like let's say now like if I, I wouldn't want to do a DNR right now because if I had a car accident and they could revive me I would probably want to be revived right but if I have if I have been told that I have a terminal illness I may want to consider a DNR based on my circumstances right it's actually totally up to you the whole situation is totally up to you we do what you want I don't know what everybody's experience and everybody's life is different it's not a requirement for hospice. It just makes the process a lot smoother so yeah. we don't have to call 911 right. and all the bells and whistles and so forth. Right. But it's a personal decision. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So does, you, does that answer your question? Uh, yes. I was going to say, Nikki, one thing I learned as a hospice chaplain who didn't know much about DNR. First of all, it stands for do not resuscitate. It doesn't stand for do not give medical attention. So if you have a DNR but you fall and break your hip, well, you can go to the hospital and they will treat that injury. I think sometimes people assume that it means don't give them any medical attention whatsoever. That they, was a they common thing. They, they um, feel like hospice is like that too. That's a common misconception. Like we're not going to treat patients. No, if you if you get an upper respiratory infection, if you get a urinary tract infection, we're going to give you medication for that because it hurts. Anything that goes along that that we can fix, we will fix. Yeah, and, and you'll, my experience is that you'll tell the family whether or not it makes sense to treat that or not Correct. based on that person's Correct. medical his, uh, issues. Yeah, good. Very good. Uh, Rosemary, you had a question? I do. Um, I guess my question is for Alex. Um, my sister was cremated, and I want to be cremated. I have my sister's ashes, and uh, we were raised as twins. And... I would like to know if it's possible for our ashes to be interred in my mom's grave. Do you? So the question is, so she, she said her sister was cremated. She would like to be cremated. They were raised as twins, and she's asking, could they be interred together in your mom's grave? Alec? Most, that, that's more of a cemetery-specific question. They'll have their own regulations for that. In 95% of the cases, yes, that's a possibility. Just how much they're going to charge you to get it done. You can just put both your ashes in the same urn. They won't know any different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a funeral director. I don't care. <laughs> there's, there's no attorneys in the room, so that, that's my advice. Too. <laughs> I, Alec, just so you know, we call this the Senior Living Truth Series. And so Nikki just kind of says it like it is so that you guys don't have to. So I'm not an attorney either, but that's what I would do if it was my sister, I'm just saying. 
And, and no, you cannot take your ashes to Owen Field or Lewis Field. Don't ask the universities right. if you can do that. I yeah. know your loved one wanted their ashes. Yeah, together. you might talk about that just real quick. Where can you put ashes and where you cannot? Wherever you don't get caught. <laughs> that's the truth. That's, and that's the truth. The law is that it that has to be on private property. Right? And depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to scatter all the ashes, that really limits your options. If you're trying to scatter a little bit, you can get away with a lot more. And it's Boone Pickens, Lance. Don't, don't disrespect the field still Lewis Field, though? Oh, wow. So Lewis has been he erased gave, from our memory. He gave lots of money to have his name remembered. Yeah. Okay, I saw some other hands. I'll get this side of the room. Okay, yes, back here in the way back, you're going to have to yell out. Yes. Is there any truth to the fact that you have to report in the sale of your home that someone has passed in your home? Is there any truth to the fact that when someone has passed in your home, you have to report that? You have to tell them. No, there is no truth in that. No, now, if there is a uh, disclosure issue, Chris, do you want to answer this as a broker? As, as a broker, it's not on the disclosure required by the state, but if you're asked, you obviously have to answer honestly. So it's not on the disclosure, it's not something you have to put out there, but if someone asks you, then you are then uh, obligated to answer the question to them, yeah. And typically, guys, it's not asked if someone passed away there. It usually the question is, has anybody been murdered or committed suicide there? That's usually the question. The fact that they passed there is less, uh, usually less of an issue for people. Yeah. Okay. Good questions. Yes, uh, Miss Barbara, back here. Um, if you're going to be cremated, can you? How do you avoid being involved? If you're going to be cremated, how do you avoid being embalmed? So embalming is not required, um, especially with cremation. The trigger for that is any type of public viewing. So if you want to be viewed publicly, that's when embalming is required. Any other situation, it is not required by law. Yeah, so if you're not doing an open casket funeral, you can go straight to the crematorium and skip the embalming phase. It's just... Embalming is not automatic. Correct. Embalming is not. Very good. Um, yes, yeah, Sherry. I, do you have to have a order from a doctor in order to get hospice? Do you have to have an order from a doctor to get hospice? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, ma'am. We also have to have a, um, then the doctor has to say that you have a prognosis of six months or less. That's just a number that's thrown up in the air. Most time, patients live beyond that. And by the way, Q, let's just take that a little bit further. Uh, doctors avoid hospice conversations oh, yeah. all the time, don't they? Yeah. So can someone request their doctor to write a order for hospice? Yes. That's the key right there because doctors, even oncologists who are literally saying to this person, you need to get your affairs in order, don't always say, and let's get a hold of hospice. So make sure that you take you take your own advocacy position on that. Yes, sir. Who pays for hospice if you have Medicare? Who pays for hospice if you have Medicare? Q. Medicare? I do. <laughs> I pay taxes. <laughs> Go for it. It is paid hospice for is under Medicare. Hospice yeah. is covered by um, at a hundred percent by Medicare. It's also covered by private insurances as well. 
And so that is whether you have it at home or whether you have it in the hospital or whether you have it at a hospital. Medicare. Right. If you don't have Medicare, how is it covered? Private, private insurance. Okay. And if you don't have insurance? <laughs> Tommy? <laughs> Tommy laughed when I asked that question. <laughs> As a hospice, we have to take on so many non-funded patients. I mean, each hospice takes those patients on based on their criteria, and every hospice has their own criteria. Most times they want to take patients on that are um, a little bit later in their, in their prognosis or a little bit closer to dying um, because the hospice will take on all those expenses. And if we take a patient on that's going to live for a long time, then that then allows to take on patients that are going to live for a couple of days. And when you say they take on all the expenses, Q, what do you mean by that? The hospice will pay for the bed, the medication, they pay for the nurses, they pay for the aid. Everything that Medicare would pay for, the hospice pays for. Okay, good, good question. Uh, I saw a couple of other hands. Yes, sir. Question. Okay, we're talking about somebody going to a funeral home that they're displayed in a casket but they're going to be cremated. How does that work? Well, so uh, the question is, uh, we're talking about someone who is embalmed, laying in a casket that's going to be cremated. Uh, how does that work, Alan? So same thing of what you would normally have uh, pictured as the process. You'd go through the same thing, have a day of visitation the day before the service, body would be present at the service, and then typically we'd load in the hearse and go to the cemetery. That's the part we skip. And so you do everything normal there, and then you head to the crematory instead and, and do the cremation. I would say that saves, uh, for most of the cemeteries in the metro, I tell families to spend, expect to spend five to $6,000 as a minimum between the burial space and the opening and closing. So that's the cost that you're cutting by doing a cremation but Alec, I think maybe the question might even be, why would somebody do that? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna address that, but yeah. Alec probably okay. has a better answer than I. But I'm finding that's happening more and more because the family feels like they would like to have a visitation with a body there, or maybe there's, uh, maybe a family's come to a compromise. Some people want there to be a casket, some people want a cremation. So what they do is they say, okay, we're going to have a visitation where people can come see our loved one but then their desire was to be cremated or we desire that. So that's maybe what you're asking is why would someone do that? That's often why. They want kind of the best of both worlds. Now, Alec, you, you probably have a better answer than I, but that's what I'm perceiving from my Right. I think that's a good good answer. Compromise is a big thing. Uh, like you said, your mom said, I wanted to be cremated. Uh, my father-in-law, he owns the funeral home. His father passed away in, in 2014. It was the same thing. I want to be cremated. And they said, Absolutely not. And they went through, they did the viewing, did the whole service, had the casket there, and then cremated them afterwards. And it was kind of the compromise there. Uh, so, yes, it allows you to please more people and save you some money. And it, it can be just a, a tradition, a cultural thing. It could be a faith thing. It could be, there's a lot of reasons why people do what they do. I mean, you guys have seen funerals in New Orleans, right? Um, man, some of the funerals, they have the second. Uh, Second line, I know I want to say second line. And when we were living down in Mandeville, I was like, man, this is like the coolest thing ever. Why can't we all have funerals like this, right? Well, we could. We just have to do it, you know? So, good. Other questions? 
Yeah, I got a question again. I, you can't have two. Oh, please. No, go ahead. Yes, you can have two because okay. we have time. Last question. You have the viewing. You, you have to pay for a casket for the viewing. Oh, okay. So do you have to pay for a casket for the viewing? So with traditional cremations, is what we call them, and there is a rental casket. Oh. What that means is the rental casket is typically wood, the interiors of that casket, so the whole bed, the all the decorations, all the fluff there is all replaced, but you're not paying for a whole casket. For example... Pre-owned. It's pre-owned casket. <laughs> for, for example, <laughs> our casket uh, on the low end is at $1,600. The rental casket sits at nine, and so it saves you some money, uh, and then you're not paying, obviously, for... As opposed to somebody, the Vietnamese culture is pretty pretty big on cremating the whole casket, and to cremate the whole casket, that's more of a twenty-five hundred dollar cost. Okay. Yeah. So every so one of the things you guys need to know that I think is really interesting, and you can look this up on the Oklahoma.gov site under funerals, but there are rules that these guys have to follow, <laughs> um, and there there are laws involved, and one of them is that they have to provide you with an itemization. Right, so Alec, you wanted to speak really quickly to that. What do they get when they're when they meet with somebody like you guys? Uh, what should they receive to know what all these expenses are? Uh, especially pre-planning, uh, FTC does a good job of protecting people that are looking for funerals. Everybody has to have a general price list, and the language in that general price list is identical at every funeral home. So if you're walking in, you can say, "Well, I need to know." What is this? Now, some are more veiled than others, and you have to peel back some layers to find the simplest thing. But you can walk in and say, I need this package. This is what I want to accomplish. And you should be able to see those charges and go through and say, okay, this is everything that the other funeral home said. And then you can compare apples to apples. Okay. Very good. Okay, did they do an amazing job? Yeah. back here so um, Alec and Q and Lance are you going to go back that way too they're going to go back there and stand if you guys have questions that, are, um, that you didn't want to ask in front of the audience feel free to do that thank you guys awesome job alright so while you're um, while they're getting settled back there you're wrapping up um, there are some books on the screen we also have a handout at the OKC Mature Moves Buckley Group table that has those on the back of it. Those are books that I would highly, highly recommend you pick up and read that are just a wealth of information. Uh, in particular, the one on being mortal. That one is written by a physician. Uh, there's also a documentary on it. I will tell you the documentary is pretty abbreviated compared to the book, so the book is really much better. Uh, where he talks about the medical field and doctors and how they're having a hard time with end-of-life conversations and how we have to advocate for ourselves, like Q said. And then uh, When Breath Becomes Air, also written by a physician who actually was diagnosed himself with cancer and who uh, who writes about his own end-of-life process in love by Amy Bloom I, I listened to that book on audible and very touching she's actually a novelist and she basically writes about her husband's passing 
Um, and very touching, but a very different perspective on end of life. With the end in mind and final gifts were both written by hospice nurses. And they talk about the end of life from the hospice caregiver's perspective and tell stories about ways that people have dealt with those end of life moments. So anyway, I highly recommend, again, if you don't want to write all those down, we have a flyer back here at the Buckaloo table, and you can pick that flyer up, and they're all on the back of it. Um, okay, so next seminars, real quick, let me tell you about those coming up. So on the 24th at the Northwest Library, we'll be talking about leaving your legacy and writing and recording and sharing your memoirs. So you heard them say, you get to create your own story at the end of life. That's what we're gonna be talking about is ways that people do that. Like more specifically, what are some ways of doing that? We're also gonna announce at that one a few workshops that we're gonna be doing where you could do it together, right? We can have some, I told uh, these guys, over here, we're gonna have some fun talking about death. It can be a very exciting and enlightening thing or it can be morbid. You get to decide, but we're gonna choose to make it uh, meaningful. And then the last one on here is next month, right here, November 9th. We're gonna shift gears and talk about housing stuff again. Taxes, utilities, home repairs. We're talk about ways you can save money that people may not know about. So I'll see you back here in November. You guys, give yourselves a hand.